creative friends. This is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients in artwork and life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. I'm also an illustrator in Austin, Texas, and this is episode 17, Playing Shoestrings. So I, I got that title from a John Coltrane quote that I love. I keep it around. Um, he famously said, you can play a shoestring if you're sincere. And oh, so great, isn't it? Yeah. I wanted to use that as the title for this episode because it really fits in with today's story and some of the things I've been thinking about. Uh, before I dive in, um, we were supposed to have Jordan uh, from Growler Domestics on the podcast. And similarly to when I had Jason on for the first time, ran into a, <laughs> a bunch of technical difficulties that were unexpected. I was extra annoyed this time. I'd been planning <laughs> like uh, three weeks out and t- tweaking everything. And it didn't occur to me to to test this uh, app that I was going to be recording with and there was all kinds of problems. And so stay tuned for that. It's going to come. And I guess this episode was the one that needed to be made and posted today. So I want to tell you a story about a person I met six, five, six years ago now in Austin where I live. Um, and I was on the, oh man, I was on on the fence about telling this story because I would venture to say this story is one of the more important stories I've told on this podcast so far. And I was thinking, am I going to do it justice? And so full disclosure, I might not do it justice, honestly. And I felt, I don't know if that's silly to say ahead of time, (laughs) but it was important to me to say it ahead of time because uh, this is a story that matters a lot to me, but also it's a story that's, in my opinion, um, I don't know, a little tricky to tell, especially, especially from where I'm coming from and you'll see. So not to be dramatic. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so about five years ago, I was, I had just moved in with Jason, actually. He had an apartment um, pretty close to the frontage road of one of the highways here in Austin. And it was actually a really rad location. It was right on the green belt and um, in biking distance of Barton Springs and the local metro metro park and all the things. Um, and I was just starting to get my bearings living with him. I'd actually, Jason's the first guy I ever lived with. And it was, it was like a transitional time because on top of that, we had just gotten Layla and neither of us had ever had a dog before. And on top of that, (laughs) I was just starting to have my my art business take off. I, I was still waiting tables, uh, on the side. And so 
it was a really busy time. There was lots of transition. And I remember on this particular day, just feeling generally really overwhelmed because of all that stuff. And (laughs) maybe this isn't that important to the story, but I I was thinking about it this morning, so I was going to share it. So I had planned on working at home that day because I didn't have to serve. And I would say we'd probably only had Layla for like five months at this point. And I was talking about this a little bit on Instagram TV a few months back, but like Layla was, uh, Layla's a, a terrier border collie mix. She's ridiculously smart. And when we got her, we didn't really know what we were doing, first of all. And second of all, she was not like the kind of dog that you see on like dodo videos on Instagram, right? Where the dog is like immediately like, this family is saving me. I'm safe forever. You know, I think everyone wants that feeling if they choose to adopt a rescue dog. Um, Our friends found Layla kind of wandering their neighborhood in pretty bad shape. And from the minute we got her, she was just mildly terrified. Like she didn't trust people. She definitely didn't trust us. And she's really smart. So she, she was always really like staring you down and Jason was pretty good at blowing it off but for me it was really distracting it was like this energy of perpetual I see you I'm ready for you to fuck up and I'm out of here like it was this very suspicious intense gaze all the time and in the beginning I would try to like shut her into another room but then she'd cry and it was really distracting for work And so in this day, I remember she was in full form and I got frustrated and I slammed my computer shut and I thought, okay, Layla, like, let's take you to the dog park. Maybe if you run around and get some energy out, it'll be (laughs) better. Um, so we went to the dog park. I packed up a bunch of stuff like to do drawing and, and, um, and more work if I had time. And, and then after about an hour, we go back to my car and the car wouldn't start. So thankfully there was this really sweet guy. He helped me jump my car. I went straight to the mechanic right by our apartment. It was probably about a mile away. And I thought, well, I'll just walk home. And it was in May. So it was already pretty hot. Layla was stressed. (laughs) (laughs) as you could expect. And the thing that was really funny was I had all this stuff, but then I also had a bunch of stuff in the car that I needed. And so I like jammed everything into this backpack I had and, you know, barely zipped it up and put this like heavy boulder on my back (laughs) and grabbed uh, my water bottle and I grabbed Layla and we start trudging up this thoroughfare, this main thoroughfare towards the highway. And we were, we were going to go under the bridge, like under the highway. And then like a half a mile up was where we lived. And the thing that's, you know, kind of sucked was it was like 90 degrees that day. And we were walking uphill and there was tons of construction, tons of traffic. Layla just freaking froze. She was dead weight. (laughs) She refused to walk. And so I'm dragging her. I don't even think we had a harness for her at this point. So I'm like dragging her by her collar. It was 
awful. She was not having it. I was sweating. I had all this crap hanging off me. And uh, we we finally get up to the intersection. And as you can imagine, the mood I was probably in. And, <laughs> and there's... Um, a man in the in the intersection on the median panhandling and he sees Layla and he starts waving miss miss don't don't go anywhere and uh, I was just like sweet you know this is just what I need I I have to have to be honest y'all it's exactly what I thought and he uh, waits for a red light he comes jutting over and he immediately disarms me like as he gets closer I'm immediately like put at ease he has this big smile on his face his energy says everything's cool and he reaches out his hand immediately I'm Gary and I was like oh all right and I so I introduced myself and I remember at the time that I think it was like right around that introduction that I noticed Layla was completely comfortable with Gary. Usually she would bark at strange guys that would come close and I thought, okay, cool. Like this is a good sign. And Gary said um, that he, he had dog food and he wanted to give it to Layla. And I, I was, you know, a little caught off guard. I was, I was like, well, no, we don't need it. You know, <laughs> And he was really adamant. And at one point, he said, please, he said, please, Miss Rebecca, take the dog food. And I had this thought, you know, at that moment, I thought, you know, man, this guy, he's out here all day asking for a leg up. And here he is offering me something and I'm being a dick and, you know, (laughs) saying no. So, so I pivot and I and I say, yeah, you know, Gary, I'll totally take it, you know, thank you. And he breaks into this big smile. And so we walk across the access road together and he had jammed his like backpack and sleeping bag into the like crevice under the bridge, like where the bridge and the, that like ramp, you know, y'all ever see those under the bridge like he had just stuck his stuff up in there. And so he walks all the way up under this bridge and Layla and I are waiting down on the sidewalk and he's gone for what felt like forever. I, I remember thinking, what, what is this guy doing up there? And the reason he was gone so long is because when he, he returned with a bag and it was a gift bag. I, I can only presume because, and I've learned this from working with some organizations that serve people on the streets, people that have to carry a lot of things, they keep any bag that they get that's strong. And so he must have kept this bag at some point, but it was a gift bag with foil pink hearts on it and tissue paper inside. And then he wrapped up two cans of dog food that he'd had. It gave me this beautiful package. <laughs> And I, oh, y'all, I was just, it was really touching. And um, I thanked him and was like, okay, bye. And as I started to walk away, he said, Miss Rebecca, do you mind me asking where you're camping at? Y'all, Gary totally thought I was homeless. And I totally, totally fit the bill. 
I was carrying a humongous backpack. I was wearing art clothes. I had ripped jeans on. I had a dirty paint-covered shirt. I had a baseball hat on. I was sweating. I was stressed. Layla was stressed. I was dragging her. <laughs> like um, I had a water bottle in my hand. I, I mean, I definitely I looked like I was camping. And then I, then I got it, you know, and I, I said, Oh, Gary, I said, thank you. I actually, my car broke down. And so I, I just was walking home. My, my apartment's around the corner. And for a minute, he looked kind of embarrassed. I I remember. And then, and then immediately smiled and, and he said, honestly, I'm really glad to hear that. He goes, cause it's not okay for a woman to be at, you know, camping solo. It's not safe. And I was just like, this dude's great. You know, this, this guy, this is, this is cool. And you know, the thing that was so interesting was Gary stood at that intersection for as long as I drove by there, but right. Like people, we just learn to tune out that presence. I think a lot of the times when we're, we're driving and I had done the same. And after meeting him and him meeting Layla, Every time I saw him at that intersection, which was almost every day, if I'm being honest, um, we would talk. And I learned a lot about him. He was a really neat guy. He um, had been on the streets on and off periodically. He had a sister in North Texas who he would go stay with from time to time who was having some health problems. And he had this fascinating attachment to this particular intersection in Austin and he viewed it very much as his home and he told me that he had relationships with people who would be driving past his intersection and he would create these like little micro relationships with people at red lights and see them every day or or many days and it was really, it was just really inspiring, honestly, to just get like little pieces of his story over time. And I think at some point, I finally felt really inspired to post the story about Layla on Facebook. And, and all these people came out of the woodwork, like, we want to help Gary, what can we do? And so there was just this like modest little donation that went out and, and I ended up hunting down Gary a few weeks later and I, I told him what happened. And I said, honestly, I didn't want to make him feel uncomfortable because at this point we were kind of buds and I was starting to experience my own discomfort. Um, I think one of the reasons why, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but I know one of the reasons I don't talk to every person standing outside of my car at a red light is because it's really humanizing to to talk to someone and learn their story and look them in the eyes and and that creates discomfort um because it it's wrong everything about that interaction is wrong and I, as i got to know gary then the discomfort became pretty big 
like when the weather was really bad, I'd think about him laying in bed at night. Is he okay? Is he cold? Is he safe? Um, and what am I going to do about this? Am I just going to keep pretending like this is okay? I really struggled with that. And I ended up reflecting a little bit on a conversation that I'd had a few years prior when I was at Trader Joe's uh, as a sign painter, we I partnered with one of the the ma- mates, which is Trader Joe's lingo for manager, and she got the store to sponsor food once a week, and we would cook lunch for this organization in Austin that would help artists on the streets or formerly on the streets that were artists to make work and sell it and help create um, an income. And the woman in charge of this program was an angel. (laughs) I don't know how else to describe her. She's an RN now. She was in nursing school at the time. And she was truly an angel. She was so warm and also like very Texas. Like you got the sense that she would love you unless you crossed her, (laughs) that, you know, that type of person. And I don't remember how the conversation came up, but at some point when we were working together, I asked her, I said, can I ask, you know, ask you what you do? Like at intersections, I often just feel like a piece of crap ignoring them, but I don't always have money or, or I don't always know what to do. And she gave me advice that, that I've thought about ever since. She said, you know, Rebecca, she said money is huge. She said, but honestly, even more than money sometimes, they just want people to smile at them and ask them how their day is going because they're invisible. People pretend they're not there all day and that messes with you. So that's what I do. She said, I treat them like a human. And And then she said, this, this work that I'm doing is how I try to contribute to the, to the bigger problem, you know? And I thought, and so then I, I decided that I was going to take her advice and I was going to contribute with organizations in a way that I could. And, and then I was going to try to create relationships with people. And Gary was one of them. And on the day that I went to Gary and told him about what happened and and how inspiring his story of kindness had been for friends and family of me, um, you know, I wanted him to know that, that, you know, if he needed something, I would be happy to contribute cash or from this fund or whatever. But, you know, I just felt, I felt uncomfortable. It felt kind of icky as it should because that whole situation should not even happen, to be honest. Like, um, and so in an effort to honestly probably dis- dissuade some of my own discomfort or to soothe some of my own discomfort, I tried to make the focus of the conversation about him because honestly, it was his kindness that had inspired me and everyone else to reach out anyway. And I asked him, I said, Honestly, you do inspire the heck out of me. I was like, I know it must be hard as fuck out here. Like, 
And he told, I mean, he, he wasn't always in a good, he wasn't always in a good mood. He, some days he would just straight up tell me, Miss Rebecca, I'm miserable today because it sucks. Texas in the summer. Oh my gosh. Those were the worst, you know? And so I said, that's inspiring, Gary. I, you're all, you're most of the time you're out here with a kind word and it's kind of amazing. And I don't know how you do it. And I said, this is the least I could do because I don't know. You've really like enhanced my life. And he smiled and he said something that I'll remember forever. He said, he said, that's what I do. Like he goes, I, I stand out here and I give people what I've got. And that's a smile. And I, I thought about that and I thought, oh man, Gary is a freaking artist. Like, and he's an artist of, of the best kind, you know, honestly. I ran across this passage a few years ago that has stuck with me ever since. And it was fascinating because it really like hit home something that I had sensed, but never could put words to. And it was, um, the opposite of a creator is not a consumer. The opposite of a creator is a victim. And to me, I think that Gary's story and our interactions, I think they had a huge impact on me because I don't know many people that were more victimized by the culture and by the state of the world than him. Uh, people that live on the streets are some of the most vulnerable people in our culture. And I don't know. I, I remember thinking this is how he keeps from being a victim. He, this is like his power. This is the thing that he can create because in the presence of creation, victimization disappears. And so he would stand outside in the mornings and in the afternoons, and he would create the best energy he could for these people on their way to wherever they were going. And when I think about the ripple effect of that, it's pretty mind-blowing. Like, if you really think about it, people going to work in rush hour, people going to pick up their kids, people who've just gotten bad news, there's this man who's incredibly disarming. And I, I don't know if it's possible to really explain that in a story with words, but you know, I experienced it the day that he approached me with Layla. My first thought was, I wish this guy would leave me alone. And the second thought was, oh, this guy's nice. <laughs> and I like being around this guy. And imagine the ripple effect of that all these people in their own drama, in their own thoughts, and then here comes Gary, a little smile, a little compliment, and they get to take that with them. That's power, and it's art, and it's crazy that it, it taught me that no matter how victimized I ever feel, I can be a creator of my own experience. Because Gary freaking did it. And that's not to say that he didn't 
have moments of total victimization um, or suffer. Um, I definitely, you know, if I'm being really honest, one of my biggest hesitancies telling his story was that I didn't want to come across as turning it into rainbows and unicorns. Like, there's all of these stories that kind of float around the internet about people that are really suffering and how they turn, like, lemons into lemonade. <laughs> uh And those stories are beautiful, but I think the thing that we're starting to wake up to as a culture is that those stories shouldn't even happen. It's beautiful that Gary figured out a way to create positivity in really dire circumstances, but it doesn't change the fact that his situation shouldn't exist at all. But the story was powerful. It it showed me something I had honestly never seen before. And that was someone who had every reason to despair be a creator. Um, and I lost track of Gary. I don't, and I think I'm hoping it was for a good reason. He had gotten a connection to this really neat organization in East Austin that has this huge master plan community and partners with, um, the University of Texas to do tiny homes and they have a working farm and a working art studio and a bunch of places and they help home people that have been living on the streets chronically for three years or more and help them get work and they support them and the entire community is formerly from the streets and it's I was so excited when he told me about that and then one day he was gone and I I hope he's there I I hope he's there Um, so what does this have to do with artists and, and now and all the things I've been thinking about this, especially in relationship to the John Coltrane quote, you know, about playing a shoestring because You know, I don't want to speak for others, but I know I can speak for myself when I say with everything that's going on, I think a lot of people are feeling like all they have is a shoestring. And how are we supposed to fix this situation that we're in? Like the stuff that we're facing collectively right now is scary and it's big and and it's hard and and everyone's experiencing challenges in different ways and some of the challenges are really really scary some people don't know how they're going to pay bills and some people don't know how they're going to stay in their places that they live and and there's tremendous amounts of grieving um with groups that have been oppressed for generations and it's so much so much Um, and there's a lot of vocalizing I've noticed, not just in traditional media, but on social media too, is even from people who I really respect, like thought leaders and writers and poets and, you know, like prominent thinkers, I've noticed even with them, there's this general echo of, we need to fix the world. 
And I, I wanted to use the episode to suggest um, that maybe the world doesn't need fixing. Um, and the reason I wanted to suggest that is because if you're holding a shoestring right now, it, like, what chance do you have to fix the world? And who benefits from that kind of hopelessness? And it reminds me of Gary. All Gary had to make with was basically a shoestring. <laughs> But Gary wasn't trying to fix the world. He was just trying to fix his world. And in the process, he probably impacted lots and lots of people's worlds um, without necessarily knowing it. You know, he saw hundreds of people a day and gave smiles and compliments to hundreds of people a day. And then they would take that energy into their places of work and pass it on to other people The but his goal was, <laughs> his goal was, this is what I get to do. This is what I do. This is my work. This is the thing I give in exchange for the things they give back to me. Oh, man. He was such a neat guy. I don't even think he intended on being a model of that for some random artsy hippie girl driving by every day. But he really was. And I can relate to that feeling. I think all of us, I don't know if this resonates with you, but it feels like collectively we're all feeling really victimized at the moment in different ways. I feel victimized just watching the news. <laughs> I feel victimized just listening to social media. I feel powerless. I feel like, what am I going to do? And I... I'm relatively powerful compared to others. It's interesting. And I sometimes wonder if the reason that we have the world that we have is because the world is really just the biggest artwork of all. And if we've made the world collectively this way, it's because there's something in ourselves that this is this way too. And that's the thing... Like, have you all noticed that? I haven't, I've noticed how seductive it can feel, even for myself, to get on social media and want to post how other people could do better. The world would get better if other people would just do this. And the truth is, the world has people like Gary sleeping outside because each and every one of us, myself included, have parts of ourselves that are still sleeping outside, metaphorically. <laughs> but that there's parts of ourselves that we don't care about enough to bring home. And so when other people literally can't have a home, we just let it continue because we also let it continue in ourselves. And this is where I feel like Gary's artistry becomes massively important for everybody at the moment. That artistry isn't just about making a painting, something that 
I know I talk about a lot in this podcast, but what a neat idea, you know, isn't it? That you don't have to be able to paint to be an artist, that you can transform the world in other ways. And I was, I actually was weirdly having this conversation through someone that messaged me on Instagram and I was so excited that they, they messaged because people so rarely message me with like cool intellectual, you know, thought questions. And this woman asked, you know, is everyone really an artist though? Like, I don't want any Joe Schmo coming and doing my plumbing, (laughs) which is a really good point. And I was so happy she said something because I think there's two different kinds of artistry and the artistry that I'm talking about today is not professional. Um, The artistry I mean today is sort of like um, in reference to, have y'all ever heard the famous quote that Pablo Picasso um, said about children? He said, all children are born artists. The problem is staying that way when they grow up. He wasn't talking about being professional artists, you know? He was saying that there's a type of artistry that's our birthright. And I don't think it ever goes away. I think it gets dormant, just like a muscle that's not used, but it's always there. And we have lots of ideas about what artistry is in this world. And yeah, it can absolutely be painting or sculpture, but it could also be standing in the middle of a busy road and having the power to transform perfect strangers in their cars into friends. That's amazing. Gary once told me that one of the passersby brought him a tent and helped him set it up. He was thrilled, thrilled. And he wasn't thrilled about the tent. He was thrilled that someone cared. And he talked about the guy the whole time. He didn't, he didn't talk about the tent. He talked about the guy and how the guy offered to help him set it up and the guy got him he got him this really nice one and had rooms in it and he was he that like that's what mattered to him was that was that he mattered to someone else and being able to affect someone who just drives by you in that way that's creative as heck hell whatever Um, and I, I don't know if like, I'm oversimplifying like a complex situation because you know, that very well could be what I'm doing, but to me, to me, Gary's story gets me thinking a little bit even about the ways that being an artist protects people. The way that being creative in that way protected him. It protected him from feeling all of the pain. It, you know, the, actually what, what it makes me think of, I don't know if y'all have ever read The Fountainhead by Anne Rand, which... There's Layla shaking. Um, Anne Rand, first of all, I mostly, uh, actually not mostly, I entirely disagree with her philosophy 
on, on everything. I read Fountainhead. I never read Atlas Shrugged, but I did read the Fountainhead because I was curious. Um, and yeah, I don't agree with any of it. But there was this one passage in the Fountainhead that I found profoundly beautiful. And, I, and it makes me think of this topic of of being, of finding power even in the face of total victimization through making. The main character of The Fountainhead is an architect named Howard Rourke and he's sort of Ayn Rand's like perfect person, like the ideal person. And he has created this temple that is about to be destroyed. And it's devastating because he loves it. He put his heart and sweat and tears into it and it's going to be destroyed in front of him. And he's talking to the sort of the heroine of the story named Dominique and she's, you know, kind of like laying into him and saying, why, why did you even make that? You shouldn't have made it. Like they're just going to destroy it and now you're going to be destroyed having to watch it, you know? And he says, no, I don't suffer like that. I don't, he's like, there's like a point to the suffering. It goes down and then it stops before it gets all the way to the bottom of me. And I don't feel it. And there's this part of me that is protected. And she's, and she asks him, well, how do you know? How do you know where it stops? And he replies, it stops in the place where all I feel is gratitude that I got to make it. And everything else is fine. The fact that I got to make it, no, no one can take that away. And wow, I that idea stuck with me because Maya Angelou had done this interview with Oprah and she said something really similar. She was talking about, before she died, she was talking about how some of the advice she gave her sons and one of the things that she said was life is going to have its way with you. And so find a piece of yourself that you will let no one touch, that you will protect at, for the rest of your life, that you will never sell out, that you will never let hatred into that part of you. And she goes, and then the rest of it's okay, but you have to keep a part of yourself pure. And I, I think this idea is important at the moment because we're in some pretty crazy times. I have a tremendous amount of privilege and I'm feeling it. And I can only imagine how some, some people might feel it, be feeling it. Are you, are you on the front lines of this in hospitals? Are you on unemployment that's about to go away? Are you figuring out how to pay your rent and and watching all this eviction crap happening? Are you, are you part of the Black Lives Matter movement? Are you standing up in these protests and watching violence and police and riot gear and more victimization happening in front of you on the streets? And there's so much victimization happening at the moment. And I couldn't help but think of Gary and how he figured out a way to keep the victim the victimization from going all the way down through creativity, through making something. 
And this is why artists are going to save the world, (laughs) y'all. Because all you need is a shoestring. You You don't need fancy tools to create during this time. And creativity in this way protects people. It, it protects them by giving them power because in the presence of power, victimization fades away. And, you know, I, I know the story is a little bit unicorns and rainbows. It's not like that all the time. I remember the, I remember the first time I ran into Gary drunk on the side of the road and I only saw it twice in all the years I knew him. I'm, I don't think he got drunk any more than a normal person, like even me. <laughs> Probably... Um, and it's, and I, and it sucked. It sucked. I just, it, it's not his story and the things that I learned about our world are not all roses. They're ugly too. Um, and so It makes me think of on my birthday, (laughs) which was last Tuesday. For those of you that follow me on social media, you know this. Um, But Jason surprised me and took off work, which was huge because I don't think, if I'm being honest, I don't think he's taken off work or something like that in the entire time I've known him. He doesn't like taking off work when he's sick. He's just that kind of guy. And he took off work and we went hiking for the day in the state park. And then we drove around hill country and looked at the views and grabbed some curbside barbecue on the way back home. And, and he passed out for a nap and I was scrolling kind of mind, honestly, half mind, half mindfully (laughs) through YouTube. And I came across a link for the documentary. I am, which if you haven't watched it, it's amazing. It's it was made a little while ago. It's a little dated, but it's by the director um, of Ace Ventura and Bruce Almighty and Doctor Doolittle, all of those '90s comedies that did so well. And he was inspired to do this documentary that was quite a bit more serious. He traveled around the globe talking to thought leaders and writers and poets and all different kinds of people. Um asking them two questions. What's wrong with the world and what could we do about it? It's a really beautiful movie if you get a chance. And I don't know why, but I just was, it's my birthday, I, but I watched it. I, I rewatched it. I'd seen it before a long time ago. And at the end of the documentary, he talks about in England, the media published a writing contest asking writers and thinkers and poets to answer the question, what's wrong with the world? And the famous G.K. Chesterton, who I believe won, responded with two words, I am. I'm what's wrong. I'd also argue I'm also what's right, which is sort of implicit, I guess, but That idea maybe feels scary or lovely, depending on how you look at it. (laughs) But 
from my perspective, I am means I'm the artist. If the world's this way because of me, then the world can be different because of me too. And the thing that's so crazy about feeling victimized is that when you feel victimized, you feel like the problems of the world are not because of you. They're because of everybody else. And that's a seductive place to go because it's easier to point out than in for sure. I'm like totally that way. I, I'm a hundred percent that way. Um, it wasn't until maybe about five years ago that I started really looking inward. No, no, actually Jason would tell me, he would tell me to not even say that out loud. (laughs) He's always reminding me that I've been an inward looker my whole life and he hasn't even known me my whole life, but it's true. I think inward lookers tend to also (laughs) be makers. I could be wrong. Um, I could be wrong, but this is the era of the inward lookers. This is the era of the artists. Because in this world, artists have something to teach. And that's how to be powerful through making. And in so doing, feel far less like a victim. I think if individually we can reclaim our power, then collectively we're totally going to do it. (sighs) Years ago, I was getting ready to graduate from University of Texas. And I was starting to have some anxiety about work because I knew that I wasn't ready to go back to public school teaching, but I didn't know what I was going to do. And I was having a meeting with my thesis chair who was a professor and also the head of the department. And he was pretty close to retirement, the wisest, loveliest person. And he was the kind of professor you could just cry to. And I did all the time. And as we were chatting, I started to spiral a little bit because the problems that you face when you're a school teacher are massive. You are seeing all of the society coming in through your doors in the face of little children. But all of the things that those little children's families are dealing with, they're dealing with. And you, it's overwhelming to be a teacher, if I'm being honest, because the enormity of the problem is in your face every day in, in different ways, depending on how you look at it. And I'll never forget, he, he interrupted me in my like spiral about how I was going to fix everything. And he said, oh no, that's, that's not how I view it, Rebecca. Um, he said, it's, you know, it's cliche, but it's like, how do you eat an elephant? (laughs) One bite at a time, you know? And he said, the thing that's crazy about changing systems and changing populations and collectives and the world is that you're not eating the elephant one bite at a time. You're just eating one bite, and so is everybody else. Um, He said, I like to think of it as pocket change. If everybody puts a penny into the jar, you'd be really rich. And 
that's when things change. I, I remember thinking after he said that, or it's like throwing a penny in the pool and, you know, the ripples go out and they do affect things so much farther than the penny. And eventually enough pennies will stack up and they'll displace the water and they'll cause the, the water to rise. I don't know. I... I felt like as I was getting ready to record this episode, I was like, this is just a cluster of stories. I don't know. (laughs) But I've been thinking about it on and off all week. And I thought, well, I'm going to go for it because. um, Have you all noticed it when you get online or when you listen to the, the noise in the media? It's full of fear and full of victimization. Even people that I really respect are shouting at how other people are messing this up. And I don't know. I I mean, there's nothing wrong, I guess, with doing that, except that then you're not an artist anymore. If it's everybody else's issue. And if you're not an artist you're a victim. And if it's, you know, like, let me kind of wrap this up by stepping cleanly off the pedestal. (laughs) If it's, if I'm on one at all, because those who know me pretty well will tell you that I've definitely had my share of feeling bullied by life. (laughs) And And also, I'm pretty damn proud that I I just hate, I hate when anyone tells me that I can't do something because it's scary. (laughs) I just, um, and Gary made me realize I'm an artist too in my own right. He blows me out of the water when it comes to that kind of stuff, but, but we all have little bits and pieces of that, that ability to dig deep and make something really cool when we're really getting pushed around by life. Uh, we're playing shoestrings that when you're sincere and you're doing something that's really real and true, you could just be smashing rocks together and people are going to feel that. And I think that's why people really felt Gary standing on the side of the road enough to to get him all kinds of things. And that kind of stuff gives me hope for where we're going. That we don't need to be wealthy to make massive change that we don't need to have fancy tools to make massive change. You know? (laughs) I have these phrases that I always say when I can't think of the next thing. I do like doing these organically, but sometimes they're a little more choppy than others and there'll be these long pauses and then I'll 
say, you know, (laughs) there's probably so many of those in today's episode. So thanks for rolling with it. Um, yeah, I, I, that's what I'm thinking about right now. Artists over victims, creators over victims. And how is it that I'm going to work through the ways that I feel victimized in my personal life and what will happen if everyone does that too? Sometime I'll talk about that on this podcast. I don't know if now is a good time, but yeah. Anyway, thanks friends. I look forward to touching base with you next week. If you are enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. I didn't mention that in the beginning, which I meant to do. Um, but I think it was we were meant to dive in quickly today. Uh, the Patreon is a way for you to support us monthly for just a few dollars. It makes a tremendous difference um, in helping me and the people I work with carve out time to make this podcast, to publish it, and to get all of the ducks in a row. And if you want to support the podcast in ways that are not financial, please, please do that. It's um, You are being invited to support in any way that you can or in no way. If you are just enjoying listening, that's fine. Um, please, please come and, and listen because just your ears here is a huge compliment. There's so much noise in the collective now more than ever. And attention is you know, definitely the new currency. And so just giving your attention is, is like investing in, in this space. And it means a lot. Um, please consider leaving a five-star review. If you love it, share it with your friends. The link for the Patreon is in the show notes and in the bio of Instagram and on my website, BeccaJBorelli.com. I love y'all. Peace.